0: Obourne and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire where the sun is out, the daffodils are blooming and uh, there's a gusty wind and spring is on its way.
2: Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London. Uh, a few daffodils have pushed their heads out, but they're being battered by the, the mighty winds that are striking south-east London. Um, so I hope
1: they'll survive. Now, Richard, we're coming back, you and I, for a second spell. Your sort of brutal, swinging Yorkers and my <laughs> flighted leg spinners against one of the great, well, the finest historian of Welsh cricket.
2: Well, indeed we are. We um, found so much rich history with him in his last visit that we only got up to 1948, the year I was born. So there are 73 more great years of Welsh cricketing history to explore with our guest, great historian, little Morgan Scorer, archivist, curator of the Museum of Welsh Cricket. Welcome back, Andrew Hignall.
0: Good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you again. It's a lovely to talk to you. We so
1: enjoyed last conversation.
0: Thank you and uh, it's hopefully going to be a a great day for Wales as a nation as well because uh, later on this afternoon the national rugby team will be facing Italy and I'm sure uh, all of the nation's attention will be focused on the men wearing the red jerseys. Now I
1: always feel about the Welsh rugby team as I do about the Yorkshire Cricket team that British rugby isn't really firing on all cylinders at all unless Wales are really at the top of the tree. And uh, you know, my my memories go back to Barry John in the sixties, and uh, uh, and I feel that about Yorkshire too. That something about British, English county cricket which needs is is only working if Yorkshire is is near the top of the championship.
0: Well, Wales so far have uh, beaten Ireland. England and Scotland in the uh, in the Six Nations. They've won what's called the, the Triple Crown and with Italy this afternoon and France next Saturday. So it could be a grand slam for the Welsh.
2: Hmm. Andrew, I think I'm right in saying that Glamorgan have um, got more double internationals for Welsh rugby and, um, and English cricket than any other county. I may be wrong about that, but it's... Really, sadly, not possible to be a double international now, is it?
0: No, it isn't. But two of the greatest names in the history of Glamorgan County Cricket Club, both won honours wearing the Welsh rugby jersey. Last time I told you about Maurice Turnbull. And hopefully today we can talk about another legendary figure in Glamorgan cricket, the one and only Wilf Wooler. Oh,
1: yes, who was who won the first championship as captain for you in 1948 and the second as secretary of the club in 1969. Wait, tell, tell us about his rugby career, because I wasn't aware of that.
0: Well, he was actually first and foremost a footballer, actually, when he was first at school in North Wales. He went to initially a school in shandidno which was a very good association football school. He then was transferred in his... Uh, early teens, to Rydal School, uh, now Rydal Penrose, on the outskirts of Colwyn Bay. And it was very much uh, a centre of rugby football. Wilf didn't immediately appreciate the switch. But the large frame of Wilf Woolis soon became outstanding in rugby he played first of all as a prop forward for rydal school then as a back row forward then through the influence of various people at uh, rydal school his housemaster donald bumfrey in particular wilf then played for sale on the outskirts of manchester he formed a fine centre partnership with claude davy and the mm-hmm. two of them both went on as then in the welsh team that were the first to beat England at Twickenham. Which in the, year was that? That was 1932-33. Golly, 19 long So he must, have, he
2: must have been very young then.
0: Well, he was 19. He was in his third year in the sixth form at Rydal. He was preparing uh, for all the entrance exams to go to uh, Christ's College in Cambridge. And... Wilf. Well, later, a. R.
1: Lewis also went to. In well, right. I, I, I think, who we'll be coming on to?
0: I think it was Wilf who organised that. In fact, yeah. most things, most things relating to Glamorgan cricket at that time were organised by Mister W. Wooler.
2: Well, as uh, the importation of Majid Khan was one of them, which will Indeed. come on,
1: probably come on we'll to later. Come on to that. So, Wilf Wooler, having been a rugby international in nineteen thirty-two, the height of the Great Depression. Uh, when is, how did he get into cricket in the in the Glamorgan team?
0: Well, he was also Wilf was also a very fine cricketer at Cambridge. Wilf then came down in 1936, and he worked initially in the coal trade at Cardiff Docks. He was working for a gentleman called Sir Herbert Merritt, who just happened to be the chairman of uh, Cardiff City Football Club and a huge benefactor to sport in the Welsh capital. Wilf, though, saw rugby as his main sport, so he was playing rugby for for Cardiff Rugby Club, and he'd enjoyed cricket, especially for the the social aspects of the game. Mm. So he joined uh, a club, probably one of the best-known clubs in the Cardiff area, the St Fagans Club. And St Fagans, rather than playing in the cut and thrust of the South Wales Cricket Association, they played a series of friendlies against other teams in South East Wales, as well as in the West Country. So Wilf enjoyed the the jolly atmosphere of, of club cricket with St Fagans. And then in 1938, when Glamorgan was struggling for a bowler, he was approached by Morris Turnbull, with whom, of course, he had a great friendship. Not only had they played rugby together, uh, Wilf and Morris also regularly played squash at Cardiff Squash Club, which had been set up by Morris specifically for the uh, enjoyment and entertainment of his sporting friends. So Morris persuaded Wilf to play for Glamorgan in 1938, and Wilf again played for Glamorgan in 1939 and in fact played a leading role in Glamorgan's victory over the 1939 West Indians but by and large Wilf was only playing then as an amateur uh, on his days off kindly provided as I said by Sir Herbert Merritt who also persuaded Wilf to turn out in fundraising games for Cardiff City Football Club.
2: Hmm. One thing Andrew I noticed it's an earlier material. Wolf Wooler's first wife was named Windsor Clive, I honoured if that would make her a relation of Glamorgan's patron, the Earl of Plymouth.
0: Yes, that's right it was through uh, it was through his cricket playing uh, with St Fagans that he met Julian Windsor Clive, the daughter of the Earl of Plymouth, oh. but uh, it was another lady, Enid James, who became mrs wooler actually very appropriately. In 1948, the summer when Glamorgan won the championship, and Wilf, I can still remember telling me when I wrote his biography back in 1995 that, in fact, the highlight for him personally in the uh, summer of 1948 was marrying such a lovely lady, and they uh, they had five children, and uh, Wilf lived as uh, Peter said until. Uh, until 1997, but even in his final years, Wilf was still giving notes and scraps of paper to Hugh Morris and Matthew Maynard, <laughs> giving advice on fielding positions and telling Robert Croft uh, what sort of field he should have when he was bowling his off spin. So, really, Wilf was uh, the embodiment of Glamorgan cricket right up until the summer of 1997 when the club won the county championship title for the third time.
1: What a great man and what an honour even to be speaking to his biographer.
0: (laughs) There's a wonderful poem that was written by John Arlett about cricket at the St. Helens ground in Swansea. John Arlett would often be covering the game for the BBC, sat high in on the roof of the pavilion with him his great friend and fellow poet uh, Dylan Thomas and I'm sure there may be a little bit of Dylan Thomas in this wonderfully evocative poem written in 1948 by John Arlott called Cricket at Swansea, Glamorgan in the Field. From the top of the hilltop pavilion, the sea is a cheek to the eye, where it secretly seeps into coastline or fades in the fellow grey sky. But the crease marks are clear on the green as the axe's first taste of the tree, and sharp is the Welshman's assault as the freshening fret from the sea. The ball is a withering weapon fraught with a strong-fingered spin and the fieldsmen with fingers prehensile are the arms of attack moving in. For the catch is their new Cymric mission, without cricket cruel as a cat, to pounce on the perilous snick as it breaks on the spin harried bat. On this turf so remembered of rugby, the invincibles came by their name, and now in the calm of the clubhouse, frown down from their old-fashioned frame. Their might has outlived their moustaches, for photos fade faster than fame, and in cricket it rekindles the temper of their high-trampling, scrummaging game. As intense as an Eisteddfod anthem, it burns down the day like a flame.
1: That's wonderful. It's absolutely marvellous, and it brings everything to mind, and it reminds me, you know, most of John. Ma- There's a lot of John Macefield in that poem, isn't there? But was I didn't know though that Arlet did Arlet was Arlet close to what did, did he What was Arlott's, Why did Arlet write that poem?
0: Well, John began, I believe, his BBC career as a poetry producer, and I think that he uh, he still as a young journalist uh, fancied himself as a, as, a, as a writer of poetry. And as you quite rightly say, that such an evocative uh, story oh, of, uh, of Swansea and also linking in with rugby, the, the Swansea Invincibles who went through a, a season uh, undefeated. And uh, clearly for John, who of course was brought up in Basingstoke in Hampshire, for John to have embraced so much, of the Celtic tradition at Swansea and at Cardiff was excellent, and I'm I'm quite sure a few glasses of uh, red wine or Beaujolais with uh, with Dylan Thomas would certainly have helped. Reminds me, uh, I've got uh, beside
1: my bed at the moment is Pat Murphy's uh, uh, autobiography. Pat Murphy, fabulous correspondent, who's who's been our guest. And he tells a story there. It sort of reminds me of it. it, it when he, in his early days at the BBC, he came under the aegis of Winford Vaughan Thomas, the famous BBC producer. Uh, and one day, Vaughan Thomas came to, was ruffling through his stuff, and he came across a hitherto unknown and unpublished Dylan Thomas poem. And it dated back, I think, to the war when he used to get calls at the BBC from. Uh, Dylan Thomas, from a, one pub or another, sort of an emergency call saying, I need another fiver to carry on drinking for the rest of the evening. And in return for this errand of mercy, uh, Winfrey Thomas was given this poem, which he promptly was broadcast to an absolutely rapt nation uh, on BBC4.
0: You mentioned Winford Vaughan Thomas there. Winford Vaughan Thomas's brother was also a Glamorgan cricketer, albeit no. once in 1933 against Gloucestershire at, the, uh, at Cheltenham. Uh, sorry, at Gloucester. Sorry, the Wagon Works Ground at Gloucester. But Winford Vaughan Thomas's brother was taught English at Swansea Grammar School by Dylan Thomas's father. So uh, there is a strong link... And of course, they say you never forget a good teacher. So there must have been uh, so many links and it must have been wonderful for, uh, for John Arlett and uh, Dylan Thomas to meet up at Swansea, at Cardiff and some of the other wonderful grounds around South Wales which Glamorgan played at.
2: Wolf, as we discussed last time, came through a terrible experience as a prisoner of war and uh, he told us, Last time, it had sort of scarred him permanently, emotionally, um, Andrew. Um, I'm not surprised that Wilf thought that he could Captain Robert Croft from the pavilion as an off-spinner, because he was a great expert at setting fields for off-spinners, wasn't he, Andrew?
0: Yes, Wilf Wilf was uh, very much um, a disciplinarian, and he also uh, had great leadership skills. And it was actually in 1946 when Wilf had uh, decided to throw his lot in with Glamorgan. At the time, Johnny Clay, the great off spinner, was the Glamorgan captain, and Wilf was his young apprentice, as it were. And it was Wilf and Johnny talking about tactics, field placing. And Wilf came to realize, actually, that as many catches, appear close in on the leg side as they do on the offside with edges to the slips and in particular with the slow welsh wickets wilf realized that actually if he got his bowlers to attack leg stump together with a ring of fielders not necessarily body line but to have a backward short leg uh, a short leg wilf uh, standing at uh, silly mid-on, although, as uh, one person once said, it was more like stupid mid-on <laughs> rather than silly. Um, and uh, the uh, the number of catches then, they Glamorgan were lucky that they had some outstanding spinners, obviously Johnny Clay in the final years of his career. But let's not forget Len Munser, who had joined Glamorgan from Middlesex, another man who'd in, endured... Uh, a very difficult series of experiences during the Second World War. Now, Len could bowl leg spin. He could also bowl off spin. But it was through the advice of Wilf, together with wicketkeeper Hayden Davis another other senior players, such as uh, Emrys Davis, that uh, Len opted to bowl more in the way of uh, the off spin. And later, of course, Glamorgan had the great... Don Shepherd, Not a traditional off-spinner, more of an off-cutter. Don had started his career as a fast bowler and then, like so many, had decided to switch to a slower form. And again, through Wilf's encouragement, through encouragement also from Hayden Davis, Shep converted into an off-cutter in the summer of 1956. And lo and behold, took a record 156 wickets that season. So Wilf's influence was not just on creating a predatory ring of fielders, it was on tactics and also his skills at identifying players were absolutely outstanding. And of course, recognised by the England test selectors, with Wilf then being a member... Of the uh, selection panel from the mid 1950s all the way through to the early 1960s. So Wilf had he he may have come across as a as an outspoken person, but there was an awful lot below that that uh, gruff exterior. I often say that Wilf Waller was a little bit like Marmite. Either you like him. Or you loathed him. But I think most people would all agree that uh, embedded in Wolf's heart was a daffodil, and uh, he always put Glamorgan County Cricket Club first.
2: Now, it's interesting that Wolf was a, reminded us that Wolf was a, an England selector because um, Don Shepherd set the record, didn't he, as, for taking most first class crickets without ever getting picked for England. Obviously, he was up against Jim Laker in the sort of first part of his career, but um, he never got a look-in after Laker had left, had he?
0: You're quite right, uh, Richard. Uh, Don had opportunities to impress. I think there was a feeling in some quarters that Shep was at his best on the slow, sandy wickets at St Helens, on the other grounds, in South Wales, where Glamorgan played, and sometimes the groundsman may have also just added a little of sand to the surface. But actually, uh, Douglas Miller, who wrote uh, Don's biography, actually came up with the statistics to prove that Don was actually just as effective outside Wales as he was inside Wales. So Don was one of the Unlucky ones, you might say, at another, in another era, at another time, I'm sure he would have won many, many caps. But I think it was to Shep's uh, uh, testament that he was never grumpy, never, never uh, felt uh, that he'd been badly treated. And let's not forget as well, there was Alan Jones. Now, Before we get on to Alan Jones, I mean, it is interesting. Here you have this immensely
1: important bowler, doesn't get chosen for England. And yet the mighty Wolf Willer is the selector. This is what Richard was getting at. It was obviously very much in Glamorgan's interests that Shep wouldn't get chosen for uh, England because they retained his immense services. But that would be, that's an aspersion on Wolf Willer, which I'm sure is unjust, but why wasn't he chosen? Did Wolf fight for him? Do you know?
0: I'm sure Wilf did fight for him, but of course, Wilf was just one of uh, a group of selectors. Don, as I said, year in, year out, was taking over a hundred wickets, but there were it was a very, very rich time in, uh, in the history of uh, English brackets and Welsh close brackets spinners. And I suppose there were others who were maybe more able with the bat than Don, Don uh, adopted very much uh, what I think you could call a rustic approach to uh, to batting but again let's not forget in 1961 at Swansea in the space of just 15 minutes, Don hit 51 not out against Richie Benno's team uh, one of the fastest uh, 50s uh, ever recorded in first class cricket so uh, so Don was was capable of 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 certainly holding a bat. But I think that, uh, again, being a a Glamorgan person, what we might call England's loss was certainly Glamorgan's gain. And in 1968, when Tony Lewis was unable to uh, captain Glamorgan against the Australians at Swansea, it was Shep who stepped up to the mark and led Glamorgan in that wonderful victory, their second against the Australians uh, in successive tours at Swansea. Mm. And it was tribute to Sheps Naus and uh, his, his captaincy skills that uh, Glamorgan, having set Australia a target of 364 on the final day, that Glamorgan should win that encounter. And the fact that the ground was full, the fact that there were so many passionate Welshmen there, I think uh, it made it a sixth test match. So uh, an extra game in the the series. So I think uh, Don uh, can look back favourably on his career. He was never bitter, but it would have been very interesting to have seen how he would have performed at test level had the other selectors agreed with Wilf that Don was the
2: man. I suppose he was up against after cursed me after Jim Laker. He would have, he would have been up against Fred Titmus. and Underwood. Who did, who, well, that was way late. That was well, no, 68. Was a that, was, that was that
1: was Underwood. Well, he, was, he was well yeah, established I think,
2: by then. I think yes, but I think Don Shepherd would have been not quite in contention in 68. I think he'd have been a bit over the hill. But he was certainly faced Titmus as an off-spinner uh, as competition, and Titmus was a, was indeed a better batsman.
1: Pretty and Allen of Gloucestershire pretty, was
2: pretty another one. All it. David Allen, quite right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they were, they were very, they were very, England was very rich in off spinners. Yep.
0: But let's not forget that Wilf, uh, Wilf Wooler did help to uh, push the causes of some other uh, Glamorgan players at the time. Peter Walker played in three games in the 1960 series against uh, South Africa. And the previous year in 1959, Gilbert Parkhouse returned to the England team after a fantastic, uh, a run-laden summer when he uh, he scored over 2,000 runs in first-class cricket.
1: Peter Walker's story is amazing, isn't it? He? he turns up, he's a, he's a merchant seaman, isn't he? He just turns up at Cardiff Docks on, on a, after a long voyage and wanders into the county ground and gets picked. That's his story, isn't it? That's well, like
0: uh, 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 I... Maybe not quite uh, that, but yes, he was. Uh, he'd he'd run away to sea. Peter had been coached when he was a schoolboy in uh, South Africa. He'd been coached by Alan Watkins and Emirates Davis and various other Glamorgan professionals who were wintering in the uh, in the sun in the Cape. And uh, his family were Welsh. They hailed from the Caerphilly area. His father had played club cricket for Cardiff before the war. And he, Peter's grandparents lived in Bristol. So when the, the various vessels that Peter uh, was on uh, docked at Avonmouth, he, uh, he would call in to see his grandparents in Bristol. and then he on one day he wanted to go across to Cardiff just to see just to make contact with uh, his former coaches. So yes, he he arrived in, in, in Cardiff, went up to the offices at number six High Street in uh, the central area of Cardiff, not too far away from the Arms Park. And uh, as it so happened, Johnny Clay was there with Wilf. They both remembered Peter's father. Peter said, I'm a useful cricketer. So they said, OK, we'll pop over to the indoor school, which was in one of the corridors of the North Stand at at Cardiff Arms Park. And Peter borrowed some kit, had a net, had an impromptu net, I gather Wilf and Johnny uh, both went over and bowled a few balls at him, and then Wilf padded, her, got his pads on, and faced uh, Peter as he bowled. And a a contract was duly agreed. <laughs> I love that story. That's
2: great. It's uh, slightly slightly Pakistan sort of e- echoes of some players in Pakistan who just sort of turn come out of. It's, it's out a touching story, anyway. isn't it? It's a little it's bit of a little, of that. Bit, little bit of close up. Um, Andrew Clamorgan had for quite a time a sort of tradition of almost amateur captaincy, didn't he? Because, because certainly, um, Wolfe was succeeded by another amateur. The last days, of the amateur Ossie Wheatley, wasn't he?
0: Yes, in in at the end of the nineteen sixty season, Wolfe uh, hung up his boots. He did make one one reappearance in sixty two at Rodney Parade against Middlesex when Ossie was unavailable. But uh, Wilf, if uh, if uh, uh, you could say uh, quietly when you're describing Wilf Wooller, uh, Wilf quietly moved to the sidelines and he let Aussie take over. And Aussie uh, had had an outstanding record as a as a bowler whilst he was at Cambridge University. I think it took eight, something like 85 wickets, uh, an unheard of total uh, on the feather beds at, uh, at Fenners. And he'd enjoyed a career at Warwickshire... Aussie though had various business and also broadcasting aspirations so a move to Cardiff uh, worked wonders for him. He also uh, met and married uh, a lady who was uh, a well-known presenter on independent television in South Wales so Aussie uh, made his home in South Wales and like so many has become an adopted Welshman and it was Aussie who led the Glamorgan side in 1964 that beat the Australians at Swansea. In fact, it was Aussie uh, with a, uh, a team that included uh, three or four of the, of the young Colts, which Wilf was grooming. Wilf, as I said, had retired, but he was playing alongside Phil Clift in the Glamorgan second eleven, and uh, Wilf felt that these youngsters were good enough. To play for Glamorgan first team, so did Phil Clift. And as a result, it was the young Glamorgan team led by Aussie in 1964 that defeated the Australians. And as it so happened at the time, BBC Wales was starting their coverage, their outside broadcast coverage of Glamorgan cricket. And of course, who should be sat in the commentary box at Swansea? But, Wilf Wooler, and when the final uh, wicket uh, was taken, of course it was Wilf who was uh, on the microphone and uh, leading, uh, as it were, the victory celebrations.
2: Aussie, I've got a note saying fastest bowler to bowl in spectacles. Is that is that right?
0: Who's that? Aussie, Aussie.
2: Wheatley. Did he, bowl, did he bowl in spectacles? I'm um, I I sure I remember him wearing spectacles and when I was sort of saw him in county cricket, did he wear them to bowl?
0: I don't know. The, the, the photographs at the time, uh, Aussie may have worn uh, glasses, but uh, I'm sure there were lots of other people who would uh, claim to have been uh, some of the fastest bowlers in uh, wearing spectacles. Uh, I'm just thinking of Eddie Barlow, the, uh, the mm. great uh, yes. South He was quite brisk.
2: He was pretty yes. brisk.
0: Bill, yeah. Bow, Bill Bowes in the 30s. Um, yeah. Yep, yeah. might have been. But Aussie, Aussie came uh, to Glamorgan and just added a little bit of extra as a new ball bowler. But at the time of uh, Aussie's uh, arrival in South Wales, Glamorgan had another very, very fast and uh, most definitely uh, brisk bowler in Jeff Jones. Mm. And. Jeff actually then went on the 1963-64 MCC tours, initially to East Africa and then to India. Maybe it was Wilf's influence again that uh, helped to promote this young, quite raw left-arm quick bowler from the Cheshire area. And bizarrely, Jeff actually made his England debut in India. Before he actually won his Glamorgan cap, there there was an outbreak of uh, illness in the England camp during the Indian tour. But later in uh, Jeff's career, in 65-66 in Australia, and again in 66-67 in the West Indies, he proved that he was a genuinely hostile, quick bowler. Sadly in 1968 his uh, his career was cut short by uh, a nasty elbow injury uh, otherwise i think he would have played a, a leading role in the ashes series of 68 mm. and who knows in that ashes tour down under in 7071 uh, so jones bowling
1: jones and it would have been jones and snow wouldn't it indeed in- it was actually 67-8, the West Indies tour, uh, and he saved a test match too, didn't he? Hang on at the bitter end of uh, was it the fourth test.
0: That's right, and he he, he had to block out an over in 67-68 again.
1: There's a Monty Panassar type, in, Anderson type innings, isn't it? Yes,
0: Indeed, yes. indeed. And uh, I don't know whether uh, his batting career, as I said, Jeff uh, was known much more for his uh, bowling, but I... I was just pausing there. I don't know whether uh, a Welsh batsman at that time had played such a significant role in English Test cricket. I was pausing because it was on the 72-73 tour to India that Tony Lewis scored uh, 100 uh, in India. Of course, we mustn't forget that in the 48-49 Series in South Africa, Alan Watkins had do, had scored yeah. his his maiden uh, Test hundred. But in terms of the outcome of a game and the outcome of a series, those six balls from Lance Gibbs to Jeff Jones yeah. they ranked mm. pretty highly.
2: Mm. Saved a series. Uh, Aussie Wheatley gave way Andrew to Tony Lewis. Uh, Another very good captain of Glamorgan um, took them to a championship, but a very, very versatile and gifted man generally, wasn't he?
0: He was. Tony actually uh, was a very gifted musician when he was uh, at school. In fact, he still retains a love of music and uh, he was a violinist of uh, some repute. In fact, after retiring from playing cricket, one of Tony's first jobs as a broadcaster was actually producing uh, music programmes for uh, an independent uh, company based here in South Wales. But uh, Tony followed very much in, uh, in Wilf Wooler's shadow. Not only did he go to uh, Christ College in Cambridge, he also played uh, rugby for Cambridge University, albeit Tony never went on to uh, play rugby for Wales. He had a series of uh, knee injuries. He also did his uh, national service uh, with the RAF based in uh, Gloucestershire. And uh, Tony was an outstanding young sportsman, both in the winter and in the summer. In fact, on his second ever game for Glamorgan, Tony, as then a, a schoolboy amateur, was taken into the, uh, the amateur's uh, dining area at Neath, which of course was where Tony was brought up. And uh, Wilf told Tony, right, This is where you uh, sit down. The other amateurs will be in. Uh, You'll learn an awful lot about this because it'll be important when you take over as Glamorgan captain to follow suit. So here was someone, as I said, aged 18 in their second match, being told that one day they would be Glamorgan captain. And so be it. In 1967, A.R. Lewis succeeded O.S. Wheatley as Glamorgan captain. And it was Tony who led Glamorgan to the county championship title in nineteen
1: sixty nine. Gosh, I must say I'm uh, I feel in very exalted company because when I I went to Christ College, uh, Cambridge, I had an enormous privilege of go- and we I was conscious when I was up in those sort of mid seventies that um, A R Lewis had been at the college. I wasn't. I don't think I knew about Wilf Wooler. There was a famous. Senior tutor of Christ, which placed until, until quite late in the day, placed academic uh, excellence way behind sporting uh, achievement. And there was a senior tutor called Potts who would, undoubtedly would have known, uh, before my time, who would, undoubtedly would have known Wilf Willer. And it was said that if you went up to Christ College for an interview, you would be placed adjacent uh, opposite, in a, in a chair opposite pots and he'd, he'd throw a rugby ball at, he, at you. If you caught it, you got in. And then if you threw it back, you got a scholarship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, another tutor as well who uh, Wilf uh, didn't exactly uh, see eye to eye to. Wilf, uh, actually one year, his rooms were above this particular tutor's uh, study. And I think that Wilf had a, a party with a, lots and lots of his uh, sporting friends in the area, as I said, the room above uh, the tutor's lodgings. And unfortunately, the roof collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> The legs of Wilf and straight point. out of *Evelyn Waugh*. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Wilf and his uh, young male and female companions had to go down to uh, to apologise. Obviously, they paid for the damage, but um, the uh, the tutor never really forgot. And every every time a young aspiring uh, Welshman or young Welsh lady would uh, apply to go to Christ's, uh, i think this particular tutor would say do you know a mr w wooler and if they, uh, if they, <laughs> they, said, knew, if
2: they said yes
0: then the tutor would say ah yes i remember the last time i saw him his legs were dangling through the ceiling above so whether that was a, a lovely icebreaker at, at an interview i don't know but uh, Certainly, Wilf, I think it's fair to say, Wilf left his mark in more ways than one on Christ College. Hmm.
2: Wilf um, also had a big, in- another big influence on Glamorgan cricket, didn't he? Because he was responsible for their first great overseas import, Majid Khan, wasn't he?
0: Well, yeah, you're, you're quite right, Richard, because uh, Wilf had been up at uh, Cambridge at the same time as Dr. Jehinga Khan, who was... Oh, a fiery uh, all-rounder, very uh, hard-hitting batsman. Of course, it was Dr. Johingya Khan who killed the sparrow at Lord's, which Played for Cambridge University gone. against Indeed. It, isn't that right? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, Wilf had been great friends with Dr. Johingya Khan, and he was delighted when his young son, Majid Johingya Khan, uh, was chosen not only to play for Pakistan in test cricket but then came in 1967 on the Pakistan tour to England and in the game at Swansea in uh, 1967 Majid scored a brilliant century he actually hit Roger Davis the off spinner for some I, I think it was five consecutive sixes in an over he had 13 sixes in all in that innings. In that in innings, correct. Yeah. And apparently there was this standing ovation for Marjord as uh, he walked up the 60, 70 or 80, whatever it was, steps back into the uh, pavilion. And Wilf, by the uh, uh, the the close of play, had had a chat with Marjord. And I agree, a, a deal had already been... Uh, been agreed verbally that, that Marge the following year then would come and play for, for Glamorgan uh, so, so Wilf in a way was uh, al- almost a surrogate father for, uh, for Marge I hadn't realised that Jahangir Khan
1: went to Cambridge and he was up with, which college was he at? Um, I'm not sure it might... No, no, I don't know, but Jahangir Khan was the most prodigious athlete, the first time he ever picked up, he was once handed a javelin uh, and he threw it and he hit the, and he got the world record. First time he ever threw the javelin. He threw it for, I mean, he was amazed. That that Berkey family, which we're talking about in Pakistan, have produced a most amazing number of, of great sportsmen. They have supplied something like 40 first-class cricketers, as Richard and I have chronicled. Mm-hmm. And we've also chronicled, of course, that Jahangir Khan became, uh, along with A.H. Kardar and Cornelius and one or two others. Uh, you know, he was the father, founding father, really, of of Pakistan cricket, and then of uh, then it, there's this lovely connection with Glamorgan.
2: I just want to ask. It suddenly occurs to me, is Swansea is small ground, um, Andrew, because it yields a
0: lot of sixes, doesn't it, or it's yielded a lot of famous sixes. It 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 has it. It's it's small but uh, very friendly and almost almost like an amphitheatre with the uh, the tiered seating. With the rugby grandstand sadly no longer there, and a large a large embankment on top of which uh, was a scoreboard, and it was there, of course, in the summer of nineteen sixty eight when uh, Gary Sobers, oh. uh, playing for Nottinghamshire, entered the world record books by hitting Malcolm Nash for six sixes in an over. Now, what is often forgotten about that game is that uh, Malcolm Nash who was a superb proponent of, of swing left arm swing bowling that Malcolm had uh, had certainly as a youngster and in his early days in the Glamorgan second eleven had also uh, developed uh, quite a useful uh, uh, series of left arm spin and it was in that guise as a left arm spinner that Nash bowled to Gary on that fateful day (laughs) in the late summer of 1968. At the time, Nottinghamshire were moving towards a declaration of a very slow century had been scored by one of the earlier batsmen. So Gary, when he came to the wicket, was looking for quick runs. And uh, the rest, as I say, was history. Although one of the balls in that over, the... uh, The ball went high up towards uh, Long On where Roger Davis was positioned right on the boundary's edge. Now, it's quite interesting because Roger caught the ball and then tumbled backwards. There was a a little ditch that ran just beyond the boundary, just before the wall of the pavilion enclosure. Now, the the law uh, at the time there was an experimental MCC law. Previously, if you caught the ball and then tumbled over the boundary, uh, it was a catch. But uh, that particular year, the experimental law was that it was a six. So the umpires actually had to meet up. Roger, uh, as I said, had taken the ball uh, and then tumbled backwards and so uh, the umpires after uh, consulting and just agreeing that yes we mustn't forget there's an experimental law um so signaled six it was being recorded uh by the bbc cameras they were actually training a camera crew at the time wilford told the producer a man called john norman uh, back in broadcasting house in Cardiff, he he told he told John, I think something unusual might happen. So let's just keep recording. So oh, the live. What a bit of luck, yeah.
1: <laughs> Not yeah. luck. That was something that was uh, psychic. Indeed. Psychic.
0: Yeah. And of course the last ball of that over has gone down into the sporting annals because Gary pulled the ball high over mid wicket and Wilf said, and there it is, and the ball's gone all the way down to Swansea. <laughs> and had it not been had it not been for Wilf, the uh, the cameras wouldn't have been recording. I believe that uh, in those days the BBC had a had a relay transmission station just on the outskirts of uh, Bridgend, in, uh, a place called Saint Mary's Hill, where the signals were being beamed. And the the person who actually was running the uh, relay station said, "Look, I'm supposed to go on my break." Um, I've been working all afternoon on the live broadcast. But of course, when Wilf said to John Norman, I think something might happen. John Norman said, do you really want to disagree with Wilf Waller? (laughs) And of course, the recording was made and now it's one of the most viewed clips of cricket in the 1960s, if not one of the most viewed clips of cricket ever.
1: I hadn't really, obviously we've all watched that, clip many times and I never realised that Wilf Wooler, the great Wilf Wooler, was the commentator.
0: Yeah and um, he also was at the microphone the following September in 1969. This was a BBC uh, Wales match again. Glamorgan against Worcestershire, this time now at Sophia Gardens in Cardiff. Glamorgan having moved from the Arms Park for the start of the 1967 season, but it was Glamorgan uh, beating Worcestershire. A wonderful innings by Mardjid Khan on a quite a spiteful uh, mm. Sophia Gardens wicket. It had seen Roger Davis being struck, uh, Ivan Jones, the wicketkeeper, whilst he was batting. He'd been hit over the eye and had to be helped off. So uh, when Glamorgan uh, bowled again, to win the championship in Worcestershire's second innings. Again, Marjit Khan, a very versatile sportsman, Marjit was actually the Glamorgan wicketkeeper because mm. Ivan Jones was sat up on the balcony nursing his sore head. And, of course, it was the great Don Shepherd who bolted the ball to uh, Brian Brain, who got an inside edge onto his... Uh, onto his leg, the ball ballooned into the slips, the catch was taken, and so Wilf again entering uh, Welsh sporting folklore by commentating on the moment when Glamorgan won the 1969 County Championship with Don Shepherd walking over to Tony Lewis and the two embracing each other in sheer delight. Lovely
1: moment. I, I didn't know... Richard and I will be seeing Majid Khan. We always go and visit Majid when we go to Lahore together.
2: He's got very happy memories of Glamorgan. He loves talking about it.
1: Yep. Yeah. Mm.
0: yeah, well, he was he was behind the
1: stumps. He was the Glamorgan wicketkeeper. Because I mean, he was a very good bowler at that stage. He was very brisk opening bowler. Some, well, sometimes. opened the well, bowling for he, Pakistan occasionally. Yeah, yeah. I, think,
0: I think he'd actually suffered a back injury at some stage, possibly on the 1967 uh, yeah. tour. So... I, I've, I've, got vi- I've got memories of seeing Margaret when I was a schoolboy in Cardiff, but then Margaret was bowling sort of off cutters or brisk off spin, very much in the style of, uh, of Don Shepherd.
2: Good role model for him. Yeah. Andrew, I think Glamorgan generally have been very, very uh, lucky with their, their imports. Um, they're certainly lucky now with Manus Labashane, but their second Pakistan- great Pakistani import was Javed Miandad. Um, How did he come to be associated with Glamorgan?
0: Well, Jarvid joined Glamorgan in 1980. At the time, uh, Ozzie Wheatley was the chair of the cricket committee. And Glamorgan, after Marjorie had left in 1976, Marjorie had gone and Glamorgan had maybe some lesser names uh, in the uh, international world, Collis King and Peter Swart, the South African all-rounder. But there was a feeling, and Aussie Aussie was adamant, that there needed to be a top name, a marquee international player. Now, Jarvid had been playing for Sussex, wasn't by any means a regular player in the Sussex side. But here, uh, once an offer was made to... uh, him, Here was an opportunity to come to Glamorgan and to be the lead overseas player. And in 1981, Jarvid uh, created uh, a record for the club: 800s, 2,000 runs, Gosh. and uh, he, cer- he certainly was the darling of the uh, of the Glamorgan crowds. We were we've been lucky enough, as you said, to have the likes of Ravi Shastri in uh, 1993. Yeah when Glamorgan won the Sunday League, Viv Richards was in oh, the Glamorgan team. Yeah. Viv uh, playing out his uh, final years in professional cricket and his final game uh, in uh, domestic cricket in the UK being uh, against Kent in September 1993 at Canterbury with Glamorgan winning the uh, Sunday League. Again, in 1997, we had Waka Yunus, the, uh, the great exponent of reverse swing, the great Pakistani fast bowler. And then in the noughties, we've had the likes of Matthew Elliott and uh, Michael Kasparovic. And again, both played leading roles in Glamorgan, winning the one day. You've, past-
1: you've had some of the greatest players the world has known playing for you in the last uh, several decades.
0: Indeed, and I'm often asked, Peter, I'm often asked, who is the greatest overseas player to ever play for Glamorgan? And my, it's a, it's a huge, huge question. And to come up with one name from that galaxy of international talent, no. uh, it's very difficult. But I, I look back possibly through rosy-tinted spectacles to my, uh, to my youth and watching Majid oh, yes. bass on those difficult wickets, which they were then at Sophia Gardens, and to, to bat on the turning pitches at Swansea. Uh, ugh, I, Viv was a very different type of, of batter, and uh, a, a wonderful man as well, and a great influence off the field. But my, oh my, um, magic was, uh, was magic
2: from Glamorgan's um, big marquee players, Welsh Fire, the new 100 team, have done pretty well on their signings too, haven't they?
0: Yes. Uh, Kieran Pollard, the West Indian, who recently hit six sixes in an over in a game uh, in the West Indies. He's uh, signed up. And also Jai Richardson, the Australian fast bowler, the star of the uh, Big Bash this winter in Australia they're the two big marquee signings and uh, it's good news for glamorgan that uh, the club's vice captain david lloyd is uh, amongst the uh, the names which have uh, been uh, included in the initial draft and there could be another one because like all of the other eight teams in the 100, there will be a wild card after the, uh, after the T20 competition. So if one of the other talented Glamorgan players uh, makes a name for themselves uh, in the T20, they could also be playing for the Welsh Fire, the men's team, as a wild card. Let's not forget, though, the, the women's team, because one of the finest Australian women's cricketers at the moment, Meg Lanning will also be playing for the Welsh Fire. The women's games—they're all going to be double headers. The home games at Sophia Gardens this coming uh, summer. So it's going to be great to see the impact. And uh, I grew up on cricket, watching the uh, the international Cavaliers in the late 1960s and the early broadcasts by the BBC of the of Sunday cricket and the impact that had uh, in forming or in shaping my formative years as a a cricket follower. I'm hoping that the Welsh Fire Games again being broadcast on free-to-air TV as well as as on satellite channels, that'll have the same impact. And for the youngsters living in South Wales, a chance to actually go along to Sapphire Gardens and to see some of the top men as well as the top women in the international game. It's mouth-watering. You've got the likes of Johnny Bairstow as well as Tom Banton in the men's team, plus those other international names I mentioned. By the way,
1: this... Prove something I believe I believe the hundred will be a huge success I'm against I know most people disagree with me I think it's a brilliant idea and you're it's really mouthwatering
0: yeah what you're saying and and to, to have some of the top names literally on your doorstep mm. and uh, as Glamorgan's scorer I'm also looking forward to <laughs> using my laptop and uh, and helping to score these games and uh, just being part of what I think is uh, I'm I'm not going to call it a revolution. I think it's an evolution of cricket with uh, city-based teams. It's the first time in the professional game in the UK. I know WG Grace formed London County uh, before the First World War, but don't forget London County was an administrative uh, area in, in its own right. But to have eight city franchises, it's, it, it's a marquee moment for the evolution of the wonderful game in the UK. To be part of it, I'm so proud. That's
2: that's a very upbeat view of the 100, the um, Andrew. I know we've got mixed feelings on it in our listeners, but it's um, that's a new perspective on the 100, that it may be taking cricket into a new evolutionary step. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the uh, museum of which you're curator, Andrew, because um, you've chronicled, um, well, the whole history of Welsh cricket in there, haven't you?
0: Yes, well, We're very lucky to be the first fully accredited cricket museum in the UK. The CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket opened in 2012, and we had uh, some very generous grant funding from the Heritage Lottery Fund, as well as some funding as well from Visit Wales. And we tell the the fascinating story of, uh, of cricket in Wales. It was the first team game date with records dating back to the 1770s and we we chronicle the evolution of the game from those earliest dates through the 18th through the 19th and of course now the 20th century and the one thing i'm looking forward to is having a series of displays about the hundred in the coming months and how the game is changing the multinational international dimension one of the themes that we also explore is the relationship with rugby we talked a lot earlier on today about some of the great names uh, who, who've played both cricket for Glamorgan and also rugby for Wales but it's interesting that cricket predated rugby by uh, nearly uh, two centuries yet rugby captured the uh, the mood of the nation in the late 19th century the uh, the game took off in south wales during the 1880s and 1890s maybe it was a shorter game the the physicality may have uh, uh, lent itself to the, the men and the boys who were working in the mines or working in the, the steel furnaces, which do- were, were dotted around South Wales. The fact it was a shorter game helped because, of course, people didn't have a, a unlimited leisure time. And the fact that the Welsh team did quite well also added to that sense of identity, a sense of place and a sense of nationhood. With in 1905, Wales beating the New Zealand All Blacks for the first time at Cardiff Arms Park. So cricket has lived in the in the shadows of rugby ever since, but we've got a rich story to tell, and the museum, I'm hoping, will be reopening after the COVID. Uh, restrictions have been lifted and as I said it'll be a delight to welcome people back in and to share these wonderfully rich stories but also to look forward to to look at the impact that uh, the hundred and the other games will have in the course of the coming months and years.
1: I so enjoyed this conversation and next week we're going to have the curator of the Lahore Gymkhana Museum Out in Pakistan, a remarkable man, as knowledgeable about Pakistan cricket as you are about Welsh cricket, a man who, like you, is a huge fan of Majid Khan, uh, uh, who takes us to see Majid indeed. Najam Latif will be on our show next week. Uh, But thank you so much for such an enriching conversation.
2: Indeed. Thank you very much for your second innings, Andrew. Very best of luck with um, the museum reopening. I uh, hope you get many, many visitors. I'm sure they'll have a great experience learning about both Welsh cricket and a bit about Welsh rugby as well.
1: Well, it's uh, here in Wiltshire, grey skies, and I think impending storm alert. But it's been a wonderful day, and it's goodbye for me.
2: Um, and before I say goodbye, I just have to do two um, short announcements. Um First of all, I need to correct something I said last week. I said last week that um, the census form would not allow you to um, choose cricket as your religion in the religious section. Well, as a matter of fact, if um, you try hard enough, you can cite cricket as a religion, uh, but um, you will then be listed in in the British population as a religious person. The same is true if you put Jedi or even Atheist. You're still classified as religious. My other um, announcement or request, as I now make every week, is um, it says, please send in your nominations for Weston's Five Cricketers of the Year. Uh, do send them to our dedicated email, obornhellercricket, or one word, at outlook.com. On which note, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in cloudy, windy southeast London.